Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 14, if you'd open your Bibles there. Uh, today is our second of three Sundays in 1 Samuel 14. Uh, last Sunday, we journeyed with uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, uh, and uh, Driven by a very big view of who God is, Jonathan and his armor bearer took on a garrison, an enemy garrison, and the two of them God just used in some pretty miraculous ways. And and in the text last Sunday, that was kind of contrasted with his dad, Jonathan's dad, King Saul, just kind of stuck, sitting under a pomegranate tree, even a pomegranate cave, uh, either one of those, and, and in that whole situation, just stuck, and yet his son is faithfully going. When Saul is sitting, he should be acting. And uh, we saw it, are seeing this contrast of life with the Lord and how a uh, powerful view of God makes all the difference. Uh, but we're going to see today that something happened in last Sunday's account of verses 1 through 23 that we're now told about in this. Verses 24 to 46, the verses for today, they're a flashback. It's a flashback into something took place into the preceding story. It's kind of like uh, at the end of the Sixth Sense movie, I made mention about that a while ago and told how it comes out. It was hilarious to watch you. And, uh, uh, but the end of the Sixth Sense movie, you learn something that affects the whole rest of the movie. The Truman Show is kind of a movie like that as well. All of a sudden, he learns something about what's going on around him that has grand implications for the whole story of everything going on. That's kind of what's happening with our text today. It's a flashback. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 23, the story, and then we're going to kind of get the rest of the story, all right? So join with me, uh, verse 1, chapter Chapter 14, I'll read the first 23 verses. One day, uh, on a day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man, his armor bearer, who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not let his, uh, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah in the pomegranate cave or under a pomegranate tree. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, the Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, wearing an ephod representing writing to hear from the Lord. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the past, with I'm sorry, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side, a rocky crag on the other side, and the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna, and one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south of Gebeh. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go to the garrison of, those, of these uncircumcised. It may be, perhaps it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, 
Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. With him. Verse eight. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up to, we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, can you just see this moment? He's like, turns his head to his armor bearer. They had this all set. He says, come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half furlough length of an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked. It became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gebeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. By the way, something happened right there we're going to learn about in just a second. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard of the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. Verse 23. So the Lord, Yahweh, saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. Then we come into the next event. Well, let me just remind ourselves last Sunday the contrast that we were seeing. Saul, really seeing with Saul the power of God being absent in his thinking. And when the power of God is absent in our thinking, the power of God is absent in our actions. When we look at Jonathan and his armor bearer, the power of God was in their thinking. We talked about last week, when you trace what's going on and how they're thinking through this, they're thinking and seeing and understanding and grasping a hold of the power of God. And the power of God being at work in their thinking shows in their actions. By the way, are you getting the practicalness of this? When God is present in our thinking, he shows in how we do life. And out of it, the power of God is displayed in the life stories of what takes place. But there's more to this story. Something happened when Saul rallied his troops in verse 20. Let's pick it up, verse 24. 
And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. By the way, throughout the text, I think there is this sign, if you will, uh, wrong word, there's kind of this marker of grammar in here that that day, and all through this, we're going to continue seeing it. I think it's tagging it back to the same day. Not another day, but that day. On that day, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, the day that the battle took place, as we see unfolding out of verse 20, uh, something pressed hard into them. Uh, So what was it? Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. By the way, we're told now something happened in the battle that was taking place. Even God had given them some victory in this. And in this battle of it, what's taking place is we find that Saul makes this decree, this oath, this edict that no one shall eat this day. And I sit back and you kind of are like, dude, did like a pomegranate fall on your head, man? Why would you do that? Why would you tell your troops Hey, by the way, the day that we go to battle, you can't eat a lick. To me, that just does not make any military sense at all. And by the way, here's one of the really important things. We do not see anywhere in the text that God said to do this. That would be a whole different story. If in all of this, back when we were taking a look, uh, when Saul said in verse 18, bring the ark of God here, and then uh, in verse 19, uh, the priest with the ark of God is there, and then he says, now withdraw your hand, and then he starts gathering the people. Essentially, he cut off, allowing any further seeking of what the Lord would have to say for them to do in this. And so Saul starts ad-libbing. Saul starts doing it himself. Can you relate to that? You know where we just kind of take things under our own hand and start going with it? And that's what's happening here. I wonder what his thinking is behind this. By the way, as I say that, Luke 6.45, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth thinks, or the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our thinking, our speaking tells the reality of what's going on within our own heart. And we think about this, we look and we see in here, he tells what his thinking is in verse 24. He says, uh, do not eat until I am avenged, until I have full revenge on my enemies. By the way, the words matter. Something's happening here in what Saul is seeing. And if you contrast that to what we saw Jonathan saying back earlier in the chapter, verse 10, if they say come up here to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And then in verse 12, he says, come up after me for the Lord has given them into our hand. And even in verse six, it may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord. His son is referencing the Lord in all of this. Saul is all about now everything has become his enemies for his revenge. Thinking matters. Matters a whole lot. And Saul in this is I, me, my. While Jonathan has been the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So why impose a fast on your army that day? I would suggest two things. For the leadership optics of it, and also to secure the Lord's help in it. MacArthur says, Saul imposes a fast upon the army in an attempt to influence Yahweh 
in an attempt to influence Yondu by a grandiose gesture of self-denial in order to continue securing the Lord's help. I might say it this way. It's leadership using religious ritual to assure God's blessing. It's like, you know, if we do the ritual stuff, then God will be there because God loves ritual stuff. In fact, in Scripture, we find out that God at times gets sick of the ritual because he wants the heart, because he wants the you in it. He wants relationship with and not just functionality of some superstitious kind of faith. If I do blank, then God will do blank because that's how God's work how God works. It's I do for God, then God will do for me. It's God is my divine vending machine. It's I put in and then he puts out for me. And friends, at the heart of that thinking is horrible theology. Horrible theology of who God is and what God is about. And yet we find ourselves going there often, don't we? We just really do. And then we, why is it that we can get so irritated when God, with God when God doesn't do what I expected God to do? God didn't shoot out the, the Cheetos. He shot something else out that I don't even like. Uh, and we get frustrated with God because God doesn't act the way we would. Because God doesn't do the way we would want him to. And the heart of the matter is, is because we're just plain doggone selfish. We want God to do for us what we want God to do for us. The fact of the matter is that's kind of where Saul is at. Want to know what you really believe? Want to know what you really believe? I mean, really believe? The answer to that is when life is pressing in on you, what are you thinking? What are you wanting? Who are you seeing God as then? That's what you really believe. We can talk the talk, but when life pushes hard and presses in and squeezes in, it just has a way out of it. That's where the reality, oh, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're gonna see in this text, Saul makes, I think, one fatal error. He doesn't stop and consider what's going on in his own heart. And before we even get there, I just want to call to you. We need to be people that stop and openly and honestly consider before the Lord what's really going on right now in our hearts. Verse 25. So what happens as a result of this edict? I'm thinking starving Marvin. Verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand in his mouth to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. I gotta tell you, I'm pretty impressed by that. I I wonder if I would be diving in. (laughs) But Jonathan, verse 27. But we're told, but Jonathan had heard his father 
had not heard his father charge the people with his oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honey, put some of it to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. I think there's a physiological reality to that with what's going on. You know, it's like when you get hungry and angry. You know, and it's like, give me a Snickers bar, man. (laughs) Right? That's what's going on. Just give me something here uh, with that. Give me some sugar. But Jonathan didn't even know about all this. Verse 28. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. Whoa, I didn't know my dad said that. And the people were faint. Isn't that just an interesting insertion? In other words, everyone's in the military uh, during this day of fighting is walking around and they're just like drooping because of this oath. Verse 29, and Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Wow. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? Verse 30, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. By the way, what's being said is the the victory was not nearly as great as it could have been had it not had this foolish oath applied to it. In fact, God's victory would have been bigger, if you will, in this had Saul not put this you can't eat squat on this day. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon and the people were very faint. We're kind of getting that idea multiple times. Verse 32, the people pounced on the spoil, uh, took the sheep, oxen, and calves, and slaughtered them on the ground. Hold that thought. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, in other words, the, the battle had gone, the day had finished out, they're all starving Marvin, and now they're like animals on the animals, just going at it in this. And, and then um, uh, they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. I'll explain that in just a second. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. I wondered the tone of that. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Let's just hold there, explain a couple things. They talk about this draining of blood. So it's the end of the day finishes out for the oath. They're starving, marving. They have this plunder of this, uh, of this city area that they've won. They come in, they take it all, and, and they're just like diving on these animals. <laughs> and they're killing them on the ground. And they're just like, we gotta eat, man. We gotta eat. 
And it's a mess. It's just chaos. I'll just say this. This is not how we would want to vision God's people at this point. They're literally looking like animals eating animals in this. And then it talks about the blood, eating with the blood, something we don't quite get. What was to be happening is in a sacrifice is the animal would be taken onto a large rock and would be killed on the large rock and the blood would drain. And then after the blood drained, then they would take the animal and you know, eat, cook and eat the animal with it. Why would they do it that way? Because the blood is what brings the atonement. And I'll just say this, are we hearing the New Testament here? The blood, the shed blood matters. It is the shed blood that scripture talks about in the Old Testament, Genesis 9, Leviticus 7, Leviticus 17, chapter 19, Deuteronomy 12, that the blood of the animal was what made the atonement in the sacrifices. And when that's poured out, that's what's taking place. And what's happening here, they're killing it on the ground, eating it, there is no atonement happening in there. And they know in the practice of it, even Saul understanding this, even in a fool, he says, let's get a rock, let's do this right. And there's a part of this where I want to go, kudos, buddy. You're, you're actually correct. However, part of this is just because you're acting like a foolish man with what's going on, putting on people. And so they do that. By the way, verse 36, the people say, do whatever seems good to you. I literally, I'm just wondering if that's a statement of exasperation. Because frankly, it doesn't matter what we say. You're gonna do whatever you're gonna do. And then we have to live with it. Comment about that later. And then verse 36, the priest. He says, let us draw near to God here. Right on, buddy. Right on. How about a moment just to pause everything. And we're actually doing something right here. We've got a large stone. We've got the animals being sacrificed the way they should be in this, representing just that God is at work in things. And then even the priest, way to go, buddy. He's calling, listen, let's draw near to God here. So I wonder what the king, I wonder what Saul will do in light of that. Verse 37, and Saul inquired of God. It's just an interesting statement to me. Why didn't he let the priest inquire? I'll just leave it there. I'm not sure. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? God, will you give them into the hand of Israel? And then a sentence that you should underline. But he, God, Yahweh, did not answer him that day. God went silent. This would be a great time, we're not gonna do it today, but it would have been a great time to be able to go and just look through scripture at times when God is silent. By the way, God, essentially, as we understand in the scriptures, God kinda goes silent between the Old Testament and the New Testament for some 400 years. God going silent is not an abnormal thing. But know this, God's silence is not God's non-activity. Just because God is silent does not mean that God is not present. It just happens to be that he is silent. And yet when you follow through the whole movement of this with what's taking place, that statement right there, but he did not answer him that day.
Saul should have paused and asked the question, what's going on? Because the truth of the matter is when you follow through, God has actually been quite vocal with Saul through Samuel. Now we come to this place where God is silent here. So I wonder how he will respond to the silence. I mean, the priest said, let's draw near to God. And then God's chirp, chirp, chirp. And then verse 38, and Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. (laughs) For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son. Why is he doing this? I mean, it's just so dramatic. He's just, one, he's the one who's making rash oaths, and now he's the one who's saying, who sinned? And then he's even the drama of it. Even if it was my son, in this, and he's just pulling this whole drama into the whole story of what's going on. And even though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. Oh, your words will come back. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Listen, not only has God gone silent, but the people among them have gone silent. And can I say it this way? He is not hearing the silence. He is not hearing the silence of everything going on. And he actually makes foolish oath number two here, that someone will die for this. Verse 40, then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side. So all of you over there, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. More drama. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, O Yahweh God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant that day? So he does know. If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. If this is a guilt is in your people, give Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim, they were in the ephod uh, package, uh, if you will, with, with the priest. And they would take the, two, the dice out. And there are different thoughts on whether, whether they were two colors or whether they were this or that. And basically they roll dice and it, and it reveals who's who. And so they, they roll the dice. And John, and, and, but this, if this guilt is in your people, give the thumb them. And Jonathan and Saul were taken. They rolled the dice, and it showed that it was this side. It was Saul and Jonathan. Do you feel, do you feel the pressure? Do you feel, all oh, the people are wondering. <laughs> and they already know. And they already know that Jonathan was the one who had some honey. And then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. Jonathan was taken. Snake eyes on Jonathan. Talking about family pressure. Verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. It's interesting how it's termed in the English Standard Version, which I have, New American Standard, it says, here I am, I will die. New International Version, it says, and now I must die. The question is, is was it a statement or a question? I actually think in the Hebrew, I don't think you can tell. Was, was he saying like, and I will die? 
I will die because I had a little bit of honey? Dad? Or it could be a statement. I will die. Fine. You want to play the game? I'm actually okay. I'll die. I don't know what's going on here, but I think we could all agree you don't want to be at that family event, right? Verse 44. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Oh, there are things that your parents have said to you that you will never forget. And I'm particularly talking about some hurtful things. There are for me. I had some great parents. I won't tell you them. It's not necessary. But there are some things I can think of that it's like, whoa, dad, that really hurt. Nothing like this. I can't even fathom just what's going on in the head of a dad and a son with what's happening here. I actually think here's this pious one, Saul, calling out to Yahweh. Yahweh's silent with him. And Saul is willing to kill the one that Yahweh used to deliver them, his own son. You just have to look at this text and you have to go, something's messed up with Saul. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, that's interesting, remember they were quiet? Now they speak up. Because I think in this, they're still on two sides. You over there, us two over here, roll the dice, it's us two. Roll again, it's Jonathan. Jonathan, you will surely die. And then the people speak up and they say to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation, this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. Oh, boys. Game on with the king. Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. I love that statement. They are declaring, they know, they saw, they came to understand that here Jonathan and his armor bearer did what? They worked with God that day. More of that in our lives. Might that be the testimony of our lives, increasingly so day in and day out. So the people, look at this, the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. They push back. And I could say it this way. The Lord's voice might be silent, but what the Lord has done speaks loud and clear. Verbally silent, but God is as loud as can be. I mean, they're kind of like, look around and see what the Lord has done and let that speak. But the Lord in his silence, Saul is not hearing. The Lord is silent. 
And Saul is not hearing the silence of the Lord. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. That's actually a pretty sad statement. It's a pretty sad statement. It's kind of like, you know what? Everything just went vanilla. And they went there, they went there, and there was no full victory of what the Lord could have brought that day. I want to kind of finish with uh, two kind of ap- application thoughts regarding Saul and regarding Jonathan. I think you see them in your notes there. I would say this, Saul is living in false relationship. Saul is living in false relationship with the Lord. Saul is thinking that he's in an active relationship with the Lord, doing life with the Lord, but I just gotta tell you, this is, this is like so bizarre. There's just not a reality. It's kind of this self-contrived relationship with the Lord. I, I would call it a false faith built on imagery and religious ritual. We just, I just asked the question, where is Saul's deep abiding relationship with the Lord? As time goes on, I think his life is showing more and more, and it should be showing for him first and more foremost, Saul, where is the deep abiding relationship with Yahweh? You're, you're viewing this as a game. You want the Lord in on it, and you're doing things that the Lord has asked to be done and many will call to me, Lord, Lord, but I will never, I never knew you, Matthew 7. I have to tell you, I don't know exactly what the, the, the full relationship between Saul and the Lord is on that. Only God knows that. But I think we have this bringing together with this guy who was this thoughtful, this respectful, this even used by God at times guy. And yet as his life is moving along, I just go, look at the fruit of his life. What is the fruit of his life showing in here? And I think as time's going on for me, I started out, I even said it, I love this guy. And as time is going on, I just see in his life, it's like, man, this is like falling apart. And I think in Saul's mind, life with the Lord is a self-established, self-designed thing. It's how Saul sees it. What Saul thinks that relationship is, it is. And here's the fact of the matter. It doesn't really matter what Saul thinks. Ultimately, it's about what the Lord thinks. And what the Lord has established, when does he just stop? He's sitting when he should be acting, and he's acting when he should be sitting. And being vulnerable enough and open enough to ask the question, God, what's really going on in my heart by what's coming out of my life? And I'm just going to, I'm just going to press in this much harder. Just over the years of time and doing ministry with people, at times I'm just so astonished at how people are so like, don't push into me, man. Just don't push into me. And I'm kind of like, why not? Should we not be people that are vulnerable before the Lord and willing to ask the question, where am I really? And instead, sometimes we think, we act like Saul, but we don't want to say it. Even when Saul is seeking the Lord, it's still about himself. I think he sees the Lord as about Saul. 
Saul's not about the Lord. The Lord is to be about Saul. It's self-contrived. It's a superstitious faith. It's a faith that's built out of his own self-assessment of it. And I think he's fooling himself. And it's an utter tragedy. Saul's not even willing to pause at the right times and just try and hear the silence of the Lord and ask the question, Lord, what is going on? Where am I really? Friend, might that be you? Listen, I don't want to be the guy who's trying to judge everyone. That's not my job. But I think you come across a passage like this and we have to ask the question, Might I be like Saul? Might Saul be more of me than Jonathan? Might this whole idea of what's going on in my life and the Lord, might it be potentially just a self-contrived, self-established, well, this is what I think. Couples, go home and say that to your spouse. This is what I think it is in our relationship. And they're like, might I have a little say? I wish Saul would just sit down and ask, Lord, what are you trying to do in me right now? Might there in fact be something I need to see in this that I am not seeing in this in my relationship with you? God, might your silence actually be an attempt to speak louder than you've ever spoken before in my life? Saul is living in false relationship. I might term it, I think, through all this, in this particular section of the passage, different than that, but Jonathan is living under flawed leadership. Flawed leadership. Have you ever wrestled with why am I getting the raw end of the deal with decisions that weren't even mine? I mean, think about it for Jonathan. He's next in line to the throne. And I'll say this straight up. Man, dude, I wish he were king. He's in line for king. And do you realize that because of Jonathan, his dad's decisions, and the Lord saying, nope, not through your line, do you realize that Jonathan just lost his king career opportunity? And Jonathan didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I'm like, man, Jonathan is the guy that we want. God had set it up wonderfully in this. Jonathan could have been the next in line. And look at the character of this guy. This this young man is an awesome young man from everything we can see. I mean, he's next in line for the throne, and he loses it because of his dad. One commentator says, why must Jonathan's opportunities be squelched by Saul's choices? (laughs) Hey, teens, have you ever felt that way? Where it's kind of like, you know, decisions that your mom or your dad make? And like, you didn't, you didn't have any say in it. And they make decisions in their life and maybe in their relationship that have grand implications on you. And you have to live with it.
That's life. Is that like not the worst statement ever? Others make decisions. You have to live with them. I've got it down, so I'll say it. Hey, teens, I remember in sixth grade, my mom and dad pull us in the living room and say, hey, we're gonna move. Okay, here we go. So we moved from Upper Arlington, Columbus, Ohio, to Lake Zurich, Illinois. And we get there, and man, it took a while. They called me Opie Dope there for a while. I looked like Opie. Actually, I think that's kind of fun now. <laughs> then the end of ninth grade, hey, meeting in the living room. Hey, we're moving. Okay. Here we go, we're seeing Wisconsin. So we go to Racine, Wisconsin. Everything's getting going. And then, hey, everyone in the living room, we're moving to Somerset, Pennsylvania. Coal City. Awesome. <laughs> Not. So we moved there. Nine months later, after my junior year, Meeting in the living room. We're moving to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Awesome was nowhere in my thinking at that time. And I'm just going to tell you, kids, teens, I am in no way saying that my parents should have come to me and asked for permission to do that. I am in no way saying that that was a flawed decision by my parents. I'm not saying that. But sometimes there are just decisions in life you have no choice. I went to four high schools in four states growing up. Everybody's wondering why. Oh, the law was chasing my dad, so. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I don't need to go into that. But it was hard. It was really hard. But the Lord used it. In fact, I am convinced I'm not doing, I would not be doing today what I'm doing today had it not been for that. I also would not have married her because we met in the cafeteria in Minneapolis, Minnesota. kids sometimes it's hard to live under leadership that makes the decisions for you the Lord is doing something adults you feel the same way but different others make decisions that you have no voice over and yet you bear the ramifications of It's hard. It's really hard. And in no way am I saying, don't worry about it, no big deal. Instead, I'm just trying to toss out here, look at Jonathan. 
I think Jonathan was humble when he needed to be humble and quiet when he needed to be quiet. And Jonathan stood up when he needed to stand up. And we're going to, if you follow the rest of the story with Jonathan, Jonathan is one cool dude, man. And his dad lost the opportunity for him to be king. I would not be happy about that. With that whole subject, I need to leave it there, but let me say this. You can do some further work and study on living under leadership. Dig further into Jonathan's life. Go back into chapter one. Dig into Hannah's situation. Even just with her husband not understanding, with Eli kind of mocking her. Living under some hard situations. Dig into the life of Joseph and the decisions that his brothers made and others made over his time of life with him. I can't imagine what that guy went through. Dig into Job in Job chapter one. Do you realize that all of hell unleashed on Job in Job chapter one, God fully allowed it because God is sovereign. Oh, and God allowed it with Joseph. Oh, and by the way, God allowed it here with, 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 with Jonathan. And with Job, you look at that and, and the Lord literally allows Satan to unleash himself on Jonathan to be a living testimony, I'm convinced, to be a living testimony to Satan himself of what it looks like to be a faithful man following the Lord. And he had no idea. Dig into Daniel and his buddies taken as war captives, Daniel chapter one. By the way, including Daniel in the lion's den. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fiery furnace. Take a look at them. Dig into the apostle Paul and the decisions that others made on him regarding him being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and having the life beat out of him, shamed, kicked out of towns, mocked and made a joke of and said bad things about. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, dig into Jesus. When people mocked him, the Colossians chapter one, creator of all things, mocked by the ones he created. Ooh, why he just didn't go. Even take a look at Christ in Gethsemane with the Father. Saul's living in false relationship. Jonathan is living under flawed leadership. Our verse coming up with our sabbatical. Lord says, incline your, by the way, when I leave a sabbatical, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> Isaiah 55, 3, incline your ear and come. Isn't that interesting with what we just read? Incline your ear. Even when God has been silent, Saul should have inclined his ear and come and hear that your soul may live. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, come. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. For I am gentle and I am lonely, lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. 
And Saul's soul was noisy. And he should have just stopped and inclined his ear. And might I call us to do the same. Lord, I would just ask that you in your gentleness, in your kindness, in your greatness, Lord, I just ask that you would help us That we would lean in. Maybe this morning there was a person in this room who's just actually sitting here and thinking, man, all this was so, just causes me to wonder where I really am with you. Oh God, I pray they would not run from that thought. I pray that they would not try and get out and squirt out of that. I pray actually that they would sit in it, that they would hold on, that they would just right now incline their ear to you, that they would come to you, that you are the one who gives rest for the soul. And God, that they would not just seek for the rest, but they would seek for what is causing the unrest. That they would draw to you, lean into you, that they would see you, they would ask the question, do I really even know you? Am I really in relationship with you? Has it just been a relationship of ritual or has that been a relationship of with, of an abiding, enduring, growing, digging in? Oh God, I pray we would, be, we would be real enough, we would be honest enough, we would be vulnerable enough to ask those questions. Because God, I'm just convinced sometimes we just get so caught in thinking everything is fine. And so we just keep on moving, trying to cause more noise to honestly, to bring the noise about in light of the silence. I just ask God we would be people vulnerable enough that would be willing to sit and hear, even if you're silent, that we would just sit and wait and think and Spirit of God do a work in our lives, I pray. Father, I pray for those right now, even who are situations where they've had life things that have kind of been cast upon them, not as a result of their decisions, or maybe they have, but even one way or the other, that they would be in that place to where they would understand that that passage of inclining their ear to you, of drawing near to you, that you give rest, God, I just pray that they would have solace in that, that they would put their souls there before you and in it and in the heart of living under flawed leadership or just living under leadership at times is really, really hard. Might they be encouraged and might they be faithful in the weight of it? God, I thank you like men and women in the Bible, like a Hannah and like a Jonathan who endured and the pressure hit and who grew and who drew near to you who brought you great glory. God, I pray more of that in me, Lord, more of that in us for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.